It's reading Isaiah 51, 1 through 6. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, for I might, uh, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let me pray uh, before we uh, look at God's word here. Our Father, uh, we, we come before you. Uh, we have uh, been, been looking at, uh, at your son, Jesus. We've been singing. Um, we come from all different uh, places this morning. Uh, we ask that, uh, that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, um, that, uh, that you would comfort those who need comfort, that you would encourage those who need encouragement, um, that you would, uh, would uh, give us a clearer vision of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you can turn in your service sheet to uh, our Old Testament reading, uh, Isaiah 51. We'll spend most, most of our time there this morning. As, as we look at this reading, Isaiah challenges us to think about uh, how we can respond to situations that can cause a loss of faith or a loss of hope. Now, this passage is addressed to a group of people who have faith in a God who has plans and purpose in interacting with humanity. Perhaps you share this, short, this sort of faith. We, we gather here at Emmanuel around a shared conviction that we see most clearly who God is and who we are in the light of who Jesus is. Now, if you're someone who does not share this faith or who maybe is, is wrestling with the claims of Christianity and of Jesus, I invite you to come along with us as we look at what can be a, kind of a difficult topic. Sometimes the things that cause hopelessness and despair for people who have faith in Jesus are the same things that cause others to hold Jesus at a distance. And I think that all of us, uh, regardless of where we're at, will at times wrestle with hopelessness or despair or disillusionment. It's something that is common to all humans. But what do we do uh, when we find ourselves in a place where we feel like we're losing faith or we're losing hope? Well, with this question, uh, let's uh, step into uh, the part of the Bible uh, that we have before us. It takes place some uh, seven or eight hundred years 
before the time of Jesus. In this, this section of the book of Isaiah, which we have, uh, and Isaiah is uh, quite a large book that covers a long period of time. Um, in the section, we're entering into a moment in the history of God's people that is characterized by extreme loss. Isaiah is a prophet who is speaking to God's people, to the people of Israel, when they are in exile. Basically, what that means is that God's people had been forcibly removed from the land that they called home, and they were scattered across the Babylonian Empire, which was the dominant empire at the time. There's been a long period of upheaval leading up to this time. Prior to this, the kingdom of Israel had been split in two, into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been completely destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom has been dismantled by the Babylonian Empire. There's been a loss of identity, religious identity and national identity. There's been displacement from their homeland. The rituals of everyday life have been disrupted. Families and communities have been torn apart through death or forced relocation. And the few people who have been allowed to remain in their homeland are living in occupied territory. And the cumulative weight of all of these losses, all this trauma and this instability, has produced a loss of faith and hope. Now, we may not share these exact circumstances with the people of Israel um, that they faced at the time Isaiah was writing. Though maybe there are some people here who have experienced displacement and violence. But for many of us, uh, we have experienced something of hope hopelessness or despair. Maybe uh, it's uh, fighting a prolonged illness or having a loved one that's going through that. Maybe it's fighting an addiction. Uh, maybe it's just the general state of division that characterizes our nation and the often vile political discourse that's broken relationships and makes everything feel rather unstable. Or maybe it's the polarization around issues of justice and race uh, and abuse. And all of this is as much uh, inside the church as outside of it. And in light of all of this, uh, it can feel like we're losing hope um, and we're losing faith. I live in Harlem, and uh, last week I, I met this lady who, uh, along with her church, has adopted a playground not too far from where I live. And she invited me out to see what they were doing each week. And so uh, I went out there, and this playground uh, is probably on the roughest block in the neighborhood. If anything uh, violent or shady is going on, um, it's usually right around, right, right around where this playground is. And so uh, this lady, uh, she shows up every week. Um, often she shows up by herself uh, with Ziploc bags full of food and bottles of water and ices and fruit to give out to kids. And she's uh, recruited the youth officers from the local precinct to come out. And when they can, uh, they'll set up games and they'll set up activities for kids. A couple weeks ago, uh, she had handed out uh, basically everything that she had, and it was time for everybody to go home. So uh, as people were leaving, um, she's, she's helping everybody uh, get out. And they, she noticed that there were two small kids that remained behind. And 
soon it became obvious that their families weren't around. Uh, eventually, they figured out that one of the kids was just dropped off at the park because his mom had to go to work, and she was overwhelmed because uh, she had no options for childcare. And she'd seen some adults in the park who looked responsible, and so she left her son there um, and had to go to work. And then after some investigating, uh, everybody uh, discovered that just nobody knew where this other kid came from, um, where he was from, where he belonged. Uh, it was a mystery, uh, but he was known for always being at the park uh, by himself all day and often into the night. He was young enough that he didn't know where he lived or how to get there or what his parents' names were or anything. And then when uh, uh, they were all trying to figure all of this out, uh, a family came up and, and pointed out another kid uh, that was with them. And they explained that they'd found this child alone in that park, uh, and uh, they couldn't find out who he belonged to. They'd actually adopted that kid. And, uh, um, and it's uh, the situation that, that's kind of shocking. It's, it's what, what do you do when there's that much hopelessness on a block that kids are just being abandoned? And this is this has also been a, it's been a hard couple of weeks for me. There's been a number number of memorial services that I have been attending that that were live streamed um, from back where I grew up. Um, back where I grew up, uh, a few weeks ago, there was this plane crash in the mountains uh, close to uh, Calgary in Canada, and I found out um, after that uh, there were six young men that were all on this one plane and they all died. Five of them were from the church that I grew up at, and I knew four of them. Uh, one was engaged to be married. Uh, two had small children under two years old. And that community is really hurting right now. And so, so what, do, what do we do in the face of such a thing? How do you offer comfort when someone's world has been shattered? Can you offer comfort uh, that doesn't feel empty or uh, insufficient? Well, Isaiah is writing to a people whose world has been shattered. It seems like they bet on the wrong thing. Uh, it seems like God has either failed or he has abandoned them. But Isaiah has a word for them. Um, it's a word of comfort and a word of hope. Isaiah invites them to look back um, at what God has promised. Uh, he invites them to look forward to a future hope. And he invites them to focus on who God is and how God draws near to them. Our passage starts with the words, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Isaiah is, seeking, is linking seeking God with pursuing righteousness. And the word that's translated here as righteousness is it's a complex word. Uh, it carries the sense of justice, and sometimes it's translated as justice. And another way that it can be translated is with the word vindication. You who pursue vindication. And I think vindication captures what's going on here. This is an appeal to the character of God. Vindication carries the sense of God bringing about justice based on his faithfulness to what he has promised. God's character, his integrity is at stake because he's bound his name to his people in what we call a covenant. Isaiah is saying, you who are still hanging on, 
you who haven't totally given up, uh, even though it seems like there's every reason to, you who hold out hope that God is faithful and good and just, look. But look at what? It says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. This is a, kind of a poetic way of saying, uh, look at where you came from. Look to the rock in the quarry. Look back. Um, you're not just an autonomous individual cut off from the past, but you have a history that is more than just the events that come after your birth. Your present experience doesn't define you. Now, this is something uh, that some of us do when we're in crisis or doubt. Uh, you know, we get introspective. We kind of fall back on family um, or maybe stories. You know, some of us have stories of how maybe grandma and grandpa have built up a life out of nothing and out of hardship or how they overcame all of these obstacles in life. But for some of us, we hear this call to look at where you came from and we think, great, um, that's not what I was hoping to hear. Maybe some of us have gone to great lengths to bury the past or to avoid it to get out from under a shadow. And maybe that's why we're here in New York City. Some of us are running away, and some of us don't even know that we are running away. Some of us uh, didn't even have anything intentionally passed on to us, and, and we feel kind of lost. Uh, what, what do I look back to? And I, think, I think that's part of the extreme individualism that characterizes our society today. This, this summer, I, I came across a book uh, when I was at the library that caught my attention, and I, I picked it up, and I read through the whole thing in, in about a week and a half. Um, the book is called Coolie Woman, The Odyssey of Indenture by Gayetra Bahadur. Um, apologies if you're from the Caribbean or from Asia. Um, I can already feel my mom glaring at me from 2,000 miles away for saying the word coolie. For those of you who are not familiar with the term, it was originally a word used in Europe to describe unskilled laborers brought over from Asia. But it became a pejorative word akin to the N-word, um, mainly because of its use on plantations in the Caribbean when indentured laborers were shipped in, mainly from India, uh, once slavery was officially abolished in the British Empire. Um, and that's part of my family history on my mom's side. My mom's from Trinidad. I picked up this book because uh, I'd heard a lot of stories from my grandmother and my aunties about how brutal life was on the sugarcane plantations in Trinidad. But I think I was holding out uh, some sort of hope that, uh, you know, there's some sort of family exaggeration that comes from the stories that are being told about the old days. Um, and this book uh, had a lot of research and documentation about the experiences of indentured laborers, uh, mainly in Guyana, but also throughout the Caribbean. And, uh, and this book, it turned out to be way more brutal than I anticipated. Uh, the depth of pain and the continuity with the slave trade was disheartening. Um, now, I, I share this to say that um, looking back at where we've come from uh, is not going to be enough in itself. Uh, some of us will only find pain. Fortunately, Isaiah is pushing us to go beyond just looking back. 
But in going beyond where we come from, uh, he's not counseling us to ignore or to trivialize the past. Uh, instead, we're holding it up in the light of something else. You know, we all have that uh, person in our family that nobody talks about. Um, we don't talk about Bruno. Um, that's, uh, we've been watching some uh, Encanto at our house. Um, but uh, maybe we have an event or a vocation or an experience that, that nobody acknowledges. Um, you know, maybe we're the person that uh, is in our family that nobody talks about. Well, Isaiah, he gets, gets more specific in our passage. He actually defines who the rock and the quarry from which you were dug is in the context of the history of the people of Israel. The rock, we're told, is Abraham, and the quarry is Sarah. Uh, now, those of us who have uh, family histories that we are proud of will often look back with rose-colored glasses and not consider that there's anything bad buried back there. And those of us who have been Christians for a while or have grown up in church are, and are familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, um, we can have that same sort of experience. You know, they're considered heroes of the faith. Uh, and that's even how they're talked about in some places in the Bible. But why are they heroes? And why are we to look back at them? Well, Abraham and Sarah uh, are the people who Israel traces their lineage as an ethnic group back to. Way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, uh, God appears to man, and then known as Abram, who will have his name changed to Abraham, and his wife Sarai, who is renamed Sarah, and he promises them that if they will follow him, that he will make them a great nation through whom all the, world, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And at this time, Abram and Sarai are not young. Um, Abraham's like 75 years old. They have no children. And uh, while they consent to following God to a new land, um, they actually don't do a really great job of trusting him and following him the whole time. Um, Sarai laughs at the prospect of an elderly couple bearing children. Uh, multiple times they get into a tough situation, uh, like with a foreign leader, uh, and Abraham tries to pass off his wife as his sister, which just leads to more trouble. And eventually, after 11 or so years of despairing of actually having their own children, Sarah uh, takes matters into her own hands and gives her servant Hagar to Abraham so that she can bear him a child. Uh, there, there's a whole lot of mistrust in this story, and, and maybe that's the whole point of what Isaiah is trying to highlight for us. Israel's ancestors aren't perfect either. Um, there's a lot of stuff to not be proud of in there. But Isaiah does not dwell on Abraham and Sarah for too long. In fact, he brings them up and quickly turns our eyes toward God. This here is the voice of the Lord speaking in the last half of verse 2. For he, Abraham, was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. The focus is on God's action, on God's intentions, on God's faithfulness and God's promise. Abraham and Sarah are held up as heroes, as examples to look back to, because despite the fact that they were old and childless and the many ensuing ways they make a mess of things, they trust that God is faithful to his promise of establishing a nation through which the whole world will be blessed. God's intention is to bring about restoration to humanity and to the whole of creation. 
This blessing and multiplication is referring even further back than Abraham and Sarah, right to the very beginning, to creation. And we need to, to look uh, right back to the account of creation in Genesis to get this. Uh, many of us are familiar with the creation account uh, in the book of Genesis of the Garden of Eden, in which people are placed in it by God to care for it, uh, to steward God's good creation. One of the things that people were created to do was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But we have a tendency to want to do things our own way and leave God out of it, uh, which is what happened. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, chose to trust themselves rather than God, which results in them holding God in suspicion, holding him at a distance, and a whole lot of hurt and disorder arising. And humanity just kind of continues on in that legacy. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are walking in the footsteps of their ancestors when they take things into their own hands. Uh, the people of Israel in the time of Isaiah are following in step. Uh, they're in exile because they kept looking away from God and not trusting him and trying to do their own thing. And yet God doesn't stray away from what he intended. Uh, he wants to see creation flourish. He wants to see humanity flourish. He wants to bless and multiply Abraham and Sarah, even if they aren't always faithful. And so here in Isaiah, we're drawn from looking at the past um, to looking toward the future. Verse 3 says, uh, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. There's this transition being made here to focus on the restoration of God's people and even towards the restoration of all things. In the midst of hopelessness, we look back um, and then we look forward. Zion is one of the names for the city of Jerusalem, which was the center of Israel when they had a kingdom. And Zion here is getting merged with another place name, uh, Eden. The Lord comforts Zion and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. If Eden rings a bell, well, that's the name of the garden that God first created and put people in to tend to it and to flourish in Genesis. And so here in Isaiah, we have echoes of creation, of paradise, of flourishing. And as we are forming an image of a restored city, it's turning into a garden full of joy and thanksgiving. Zion and Eden actually uh, share a lot of similarities. Uh, Eden was a walled-in garden where God and humanity shared fellowship with each other. And Zion was a walled city, and within that city was the temple in which God's presence was with his people. And here they're even being merged together into some sort of garden city. And we actually see this image uh, even further developed uh, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, where the city of God has a river of the water of life flowing through it, and the tree of life is bringing healing to all the nations. There is this future hope that all will be well. And back in Isaiah, in verse 4, um, there's more evidence of things being set right um, to be looked for. Uh, there, there's a vision for God's justice and judgment going out that's visible to all the world. And our passage ends uh, in verse 6 with a description of 
just the fleeting nature of the world around us in its present fallen state, uh, wearing out like a garment uh, in the face of the hope of a restored, renewed creation where God sets everything right. All right, so um, Isaiah, you know, he looks back, um, and then Isaiah looks forward. But, but what about the present? What, what about hopelessness or despair we might be facing right now? How does God draw near? How does God bring comfort to us in a way that's not just recalling memories or trying to imagine a new reality as important as both of those things seem to be? Well, this is where we turn our attention to Jesus. We look to Jesus. The people of God continued on in a state of exile for hundreds of years, and, and some are able to return to their land um, as the Babylonian Empire falls and other empires rise. And, but they, they never actually achieved this vision of restoration on their own. But there is this hope that God will intervene and restore righteousness and justice, which continues throughout this time, and then Jesus shows up, and he's acting an awful lot like God. In our gospel reading in Matthew, uh, we find that Jesus is having a conversation with his close disciples that he's gathered together. They have just witnessed Jesus feeding thousands of people with just four loaves of bread, and this is not the only time that Jesus does something like this. With Jesus' presence, uh, there's this abundance of provision. Um, there's a foretaste of the flourishing and care that Isaiah was looking forward to. In Jesus, God is stepping into his creation to set things right, to dwell with his people as it was in the garden, to comfort his people as Isaiah hopes for. And that is why uh, Jesus goes on to die on the cross, to take upon himself the death and pain that's resulted from his people turning away from him. Jesus suffers with those who suffer. But also in doing all this, uh, he wants to bring them into the life that we were made for. He rises from the dead. Death and suffering are not the final answer. And that's what we're invited into when we are invited to follow Jesus. And so we find Jesus talking with his disciples and asking them, uh, who do they think he is? Well, this is uh, a question that he throws out to them uh, in response to the disciples promptly forgetting that Jesus had just fed thousands of people with four loaves of bread and the disciples getting into an argument because they're hungry. Um, one, one of Jesus' followers in the midst of all this, uh, Peter, he speaks up and he answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. That's God's promised one who brings the hope for salvation and restoration. Jesus responds by saying that uh, on Peter, um, on this rock, and Peter's name means rock, um, on this rock I will build my church. Uh, well, what, what, what's going on here? Well, I think what we're seeing here is, is the character of God. Um, which is the same as the character of God we saw back in Isaiah. Um, Peter, uh, like Abraham and Sarah before him, isn't perfect. Uh, in fact, uh, Peter uh, is often best known for denying Jesus three times uh, sh uh, shortly after oh, it's happening here. And he's also known for uh, getting called out by the Apostle Paul for not hanging out with non-Jewish Christians. And um, 
it's actually, it's not anything really special about Peter here. Um, it's simply that Peter is willing to acknowledge that Jesus is God and follow him and trust in him to go to him for what he needs, uh, especially when he's messed up. But more so, um, God is faithful to his promises. God welcomes in and works through people who haven't got it all together and who sometimes fall into hopelessness and despair. Jesus builds up his church, his people, um, us, uh, as witnesses of the restoration that is to come in its fullness. It's actually people like Peter and like Abraham and Sarah, uh, people like you and me, who are far from perfect, yet who confess Jesus as Lord, that Jesus gathers together as witnesses of the hope we see and that we long for in Isaiah. So how do we respond uh, when we face hopelessness or are losing faith? It's something that we come back to a time and time again here at Emmanuel. We look to Jesus. He's our comfort. He's our hope. He's the one who holds us in our suffering and the one who makes all things new. Jesus remains faithful to those of us who put our trust in him, even when we're in a place where we don't know which way is up and which way is down. Uh, he remains faithful to us when we're feeling strong. He remains especially faithful to, to us when we are feeling weak. And so wherever you are, um, if you're feeling weak, um, if you are wrestling with God feeling distance, if you are feeling that God is near, um, the encouragement is the same. Um, so we're going to continue on in our service here. We're going to continue looking to Jesus. We're going to continue looking to him in prayer and in song. Uh, and Jesus is faithful. Um, he's faithful to be with us no matter what it is that we face. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.